You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 13th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, all for one and one for all. Poland's Prime Minister compares NATO to the three musketeers. But will the alliance hold under threats from would-be President Donald Trump? Also coming up, the British Prime Minister does his best to push through the Rwanda bill. I want to finish the job, right? And finishing the job means getting this legislation on the statute books and getting this scheme up and running. I am determined to see that through. But will propose legislation to send asylum seekers to a country some people say is unsafe actually become law? Plus... So you to suggest that I'm a member of the squad is about as believable as you being a member of George Santos' volleyball team. The latest from the US as the race heats up to replace George Santos' seat in Congress. We'll hear the latest news from the UAE and Saint Laurent expands its universe with a bookshop in Paris. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. Thailand's former Prime Minister Thaksin Shinawat has been granted parole after serving six months in detention in hospital. France has sent a written proposal to Beirut aimed at ending hostilities with Israel and settling the disputed Lebanon-Israel border. And a Dutch court has ordered the government to block all exports of F-35 fighter jet parts to Israel. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, with the election of Donald Tusk as its Prime Minister, Poland is firmly back on the European circuit. This is being demonstrated this week by a tour described by Mr Tusk as a revitalisation of relations with our great European partners. With stop-offs in Brussels and Kyiv to come, Mr Tusk had a working lunch yesterday with the French President Emmanuel Macron in Paris before heading off to dinner in Berlin with Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Well, I'm joined now by Mateusz Mazzini, who's writer-at-large at Gazeta Wyborcza and lecturer in journalism at Collegium Civitas in Warsaw. A very good morning to you, Mateusz. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So, well-fed, Mr Tusk, well-travelled and, and well-versed also in being an international figure. I mean, this is an ambitious week for him, isn't it? It is, and it is clearly part of the diplomatic offensive of his uh, government to restore the position of Poland uh, on the European stage earlier last month, we had uh, similar travels on behalf of uh, Radosław Sikorski, who is the newly appointed head of um, the foreign ministry, who traveled to Berlin as well to hold the first um, bilateral multi-governmental consultations that Poland has had with Germany in over um, five years. So it's, for all intents and purposes, a very intense uh, period for the Polish diplomacy. And as I said, there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of effort to make sure that Poland is seen and that everybody in Europe is at least aware of the fact that Poland is trying to be back at the negotiation table concerning this, the, the most important uh, deals, affairs and topics in European politics, not just Ukraine. There is a lot to catch up on, isn't there? I mean, and starting with France and Germany is no great surprise. It is and it isn't because one needs to be uh, aware of the fact that despite the fact that Germany is 
single-handedly the most important trade and political partner for Europe, not just because of its, uh, for, for Poland, sorry, not just because of its uh, geographical location, but also because of the country being the center of gravity uh, of the European Union. Poland has had rather tense relationships with uh, Germany for the last eight years under the governance of uh, the law and justice uh, party that didn't really seek any compromise and really see uh, the point of uh, having very strong mutual uh, relations. Uh, and right now, Tusk is making every effort possible to come across as someone that is really a conciliatory politician. Uh, he is uh, a person of international recognition. He is a person of international uh, statute, having been um, the president of the European Commission and all things considered a very well-recognized person um, in Brussels and abroad. Uh, but in the wake of the conflict in Ukraine, but also taking into consideration that the uh, ever-growing likelihood of uh, Donald Trump returning to the White House uh, later uh, this year in uh, American presidential elections, his recent comments about uh, encouraging Russia to do whatever the hell it wants with the countries that do not contribute significantly to its military uh, spending within uh, the North Atlantic uh, Treaty Alliance, uh, there is a lot to catch up, and a lot of these things have to be processed very, very quickly because uh, the time is ticking. Indeed. I mean, we'll come to NATO and Donald Trump in a moment, but in terms of what Donald Tusk now does in, in, in terms of bringing Poland back within the European fold, I mean, what, what are his aims? And you mentioned Ukraine there, and Poland, obviously on the border with Ukraine, part of the European Union, having just emerged from uh, a, a far-right uh, decade um, in politics and now having to make sure that that Poland now is is firmly back within Europe and also is is reaching back out to Ukraine again yes and at the same time is actually firmly protesting uh, protecting its own uh, national interest because Tusk yesterday in Paris actually said there isn't any politician in Europe that would be more pro-Ukrainian than I am but Poland needs to uh, fight for its own interest needs to protect its uh, economic and food security uh, as well and that's a very important comment not just in the wake of the recent um agricultural protests uh, outside the European Parliament building and in many other countries in Europe, but also uh, taking into consideration the, uh, the issues of the Ukrainian grain uh, being imported into Poland and also into other European um, domestic markets. Uh, so whilst it is obviously correct as a diagnosis to see Tusk as uh, a politician that will return to be the main advocate of the European calls, broadly speaking, on the international stage here in Europe, he will also be um, a politician that would firmly uh, set the boundaries between helping Ukraine, but at the same maintaining uh, or seeking for benefits uh, for the Polish um, people and the Polish economy as well. And he reiterated that again in uh, Paris last night because he said there is no alternative to NATO, there is no alternative to the European Union, but the pillars of mutual security cannot just rely on defense. He actually stated quite clearly energy and food security are equally important, uh, not just for the bilateral relations between Poland and France, but for Europe as a whole. We mentioned a moment ago, you did uh, the, the comments from Donald Trump 
um, that he would encourage the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, to attack any NATO member if it didn't meet its spending targets. That has triggered outrage in Europe. Um, that wasn't mentioned openly by Donald Tusk, nor was it open mentioned by, openly mentioned by Emmanuel Macron or Olaf Scholz yesterday. But the line from Tusk was astonishing, wasn't it? It says the EU and NATO's philosophy is like the three musketeers. There's sort of an all for one and one for all um, sense. Is there an idea that perhaps that Donald Tusk, with his energy, with his international outlook, will strengthen the European Union and will also strengthen the European parts of NATO? I think there's certainly a hope of that kind in Western European countries, because obviously Tusk right now is um, in the glory of being the very first uh, European politician to have defeated a populist incumbent. And that's a major achievement, uh, uh, one to be taken into consideration every single time one discusses the political situation in Poland and Europe. But I think it would be naive uh, to a certain extent to hope that Tusk will right now uh, lead the sort of liberal pan-European charge against the far right and populist or even extend its influence to NATO uh, and try to counterbalance the potential negative influence of uh, Donald Trump should he really be uh, elected for his second term in November uh, because Tusk will be uh, immensely occupied with domestic politics and the problems that are rising right now at home. It's not easy to have uh, the main opposition party as a former populist um, government that is really uh, obstructionist in nature, that's really trying to violate almost every single policy implemented by the Tusk government. So Tusk will have neither the time, neither the energy, nor even the manpower, the diplomatic resources um, to lead uh, Europe um, to provide some sort of alternative to um, Trump's um, critical um, comments about uh, NATO and international involvement of America as a whole. So let's focus on Donald Tusk's travels from a, a domestic Polish point of view. And you mentioned the fact that he has struggles back at home. I think the, the Law and Justice Party um, has a majority in the lower house, doesn't it? So it, it, as you say, it is making it will make life difficult for Donald Tusk. How does his international um, reassertion play back at home? I think it's, it plays very well with his own uh, electorate because the people that voted on October 15th last year on um, the Civic Coalition or any other um, party that is forming the current government for that matter is substantially a pro-European progressive uh, liberal electorate that would like Poland to be again a major player in Europe or at least to matter. Uh, to be present at the negotiation table, because not even that was uh, the feature of, of Polish diplomacy for the last uh, eight years. Uh, but I think within the, with the opposition, uh, it's the it's the usual negativity, is the usual criticism, um, especially taking into consideration the mutual relations with uh, Germany. Because as much as the travels to uh, Paris and the conversation with Macron was largely focusing about uh, mutual defence and and uh, European security and strengthening European uh, defence uh, capabilities to be less dependent on um, the American troops present in Europe uh, should uh, there be a direct invasion or a direct threat of invasion from uh, Russia. The, the trip to Berlin, um, both the, the one by Donald Tusk uh, as well as the one uh, already uh, completed by Sikorsky um, two weeks ago, uh, is infinitely more political uh, because even Sikorsky being this very experienced seasoned diplomat and a rather liberal uh, presence in European politics um, confirmed that Poland is 
actually uh, taking into consideration or actually analyzing different ways in which Germany could contribute financially uh, to uh, the economic development of Poland sort of to compensate, he didn't really use the exact word of war reparations, but uh, it could be understood from the context that uh, the Polish diplomacy is not actually going to entirely drop um, the topic of war reparations, which was the idea fixed, the, the main uh, pillar of um, mutual relations with Germany under law and justice for the last eight years. Mateusz Mazzini, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. Here in London now, if a parliamentary report into a proposed law to deport asylum seekers arriving in Britain to Rwanda is anything to go by, the bill will not become law. The report says the bill is fundamentally incompatible with the UK's human rights obligations, erodes the protections laid down in the Human Rights Act, contravenes parts of the European Convention on Human Rights and falls short of the UK's commitment to comply with international treaties. But despite all this, the bill is quickly working its way towards a place in the British state. Statute books. To tell us more, I'm joined now by Steve Crawshaw, author, journalist and formerly the Policy and Advocacy Director at Freedom From Torture. A very warm welcome back to Monocle Radio, Steve. Good morning. Good morning. Um, just bring us up to date with where we are with this bill in terms of its journey through the political um, sphere in, in, in the UK. Uh, it reached its committee stage in the House of Lords yesterday. Tell us what that means and, and what was said. Yes, yeah, so we're, we're right in the middle of some um, pretty extraordinary stuff, really. It's really, in, in the darkest sense, it, it's soap opera, and, and in the darkest sense, it almost has comedy attached to it. So we have these ideas that the government has been putting through for quite a while now. It's now focused on Rwanda because the Supreme Court in Britain um, said that it was not safe to send people back to Rwanda, which was part of their broader plans of, of stopping the boats and how all of that was going to happen. And they have now come up with a fairly surreal idea, which is that although the Supreme Court may have said this, actually it needs to be no longer the case. Um, and so some of the amendments which the House of Lords are now working through um, are addressing the the absurdity, to be honest, about what the what the government is doing. So in terms of the parliamentary situation, the House of Commons um, has uh, has voted for it in the first time. There you have the additional irony that you have what one can only really call the far right, the radical right, whatever word you like to use it, um, who think that this is actually not strong enough, and, and the one wing of the Conservative Party, a number of liberal conservatives who are worried in the other direction. So it survived a, a right wing rebellion, the Commons, but the Lords has been, which is kind of much more concerned with the rule of law in general terms, very, very often. It's run into huge difficulties there already at a key debate. And in the next few weeks, it will come through and they will vote quite possible that they will vote for a number of amendments, which in turn the House of Commons and the government will find unacceptable. It's a it's a pretty messy situation. Let's examine the rule of law issue here, because this is the, the, the proposed bill um, takes power away from the judiciary, doesn't it? It does. And this has, unsurprisingly, to be honest, absolutely outraged a bunch of people from Conservative, uh, former Conservative Home Secretary Lord Clark, who's been pretty conservative on these refugee issues himself. He described this as a very dangerous constitutional provision and even used the word elective dictatorship if the government were to say what the Supreme Court thinks is is not actually um, the case. Um, we've got used to some pretty odd language where um, 
one of the amendments uh, which says thus replacing a previous finding by the Supreme Court, you have to explain what the amendment is about. The amendment says it seeks to make it plain that the bill replaces a judicial finding of fact. It's almost trolling the government, basically, um, at this moment. And we have the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, uh, last night was uh, asking a rhetorical question of why is everybody lining up to try and stop me? Uh, you kind of want to give a non-rhetorical answer to that is because it's a very dangerous bill. So that that is one among many. But that fact that it's fundamentally incompatible, as you, you quoted the, uh, the Joint Committee on Human Rights saying, that's not just that committee that's saying it. It's a huge number of people. It's included the Archbishop of Canterbury, includes super, former Supreme Court judges. So many are coming together. But the government almost doesn't seem to care because it thinks it's red meat for a certain bit of its constituency. I think most people would say it's highly unlikely that anything, anybody will be sent, even if they manage to force this through. The British system obviously means that the Commons can eventually get its way, even if the House of Lords protests, and it may protest once, it may protest twice, but protesting more than twice is considered very um, impolite in a parliamentary context. So it can get it through eventually, but we have, of course, got um, an election coming up quite soon. At a certain point, the, uh, the clock runs out and all of that. And even if it doesn't, there's a number of problems. Even if it got it on the statute books, there's still a number of practical problems about making it happen. Indeed. And politically, this is something that, that the UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak clings to dearly, doesn't he? Because his stopping the boats policy is one of the five flagship pledges he made to the British public. Exactly. So so he's desperate to sound terribly strong and powerful and everything else. And, you know, we will make this happen. A bit like uh, one of his predecessors, Theresa May, who won Brexit, said, let's just get this done. He said, that's what the country wants. He's determined to get it on the statute books. He, he may indeed get it on the statute books, um, but he also talks about getting the scheme up and running, which is unlikely. So I think he merely needs to use the kind of language which will please people who have no reason to be looking into the details of this. Why would every voter be following the intricacies of the, the parliamentary issues? So if he shouts loudly enough that this is going to happen, this will happen because I'm a strong prime minister, he will hope that some of those who indeed want all of these problems to be magically solved will think here's the tough guy that we that we need. It's interesting that the Labour Party is itself fairly uh, very hesitant about being pushed into the other side of that argument. So you've got the quite interesting paradox. You've got the Liberal Democrats, you've got the Greens who've been very, very strong. Uh, you've also got crossbenchers like, as I mentioned, the former Supreme Court judges, people who are, if you like, above politics, or the, the Archbishop of Canterbury, extraordinary. Um, but the Labour Party is a bit worried about being painted as being, if you like, the pro-vote party. And so although it's opposing it, it's actually not doing it with, uh, you know, with the full Monty opposition, if you like. Because very briefly, Steve, I'm afraid we're running out of time here. The the leader of the Labour Party is a former human rights lawyer. He is. I mean, we're full of those paradoxes. Keir Starmer, a very decent man, I'm sure cares about human rights, but he, he cares more at the moment about his focus groups um, than he does about human rights, I think it's fair to say. Uh, and I think most people looking carefully at the issue, a range of different issues, uh, would say that Keir Starmer is, um, yeah, is constantly minding his language. Heaven knows what he thinks uh, when he's discussing things, you know, in, in the privacy of his own kitchen, um, but, but very cautious um, not to be painted into a certain corner. Steve Corshaw, thank you so much as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. Still to come on today's programme, we have a flick through the day's papers, a roundup of the news from the UAE and find out why the French fashion house Saint Laurent is branching out into books. This is The Globalist. Mm-hmm.
CBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Twenty at Dufourstrasse in Zurich, which is where we head now to Monocle's Swiss HQ to have a look at today's newspapers. Joining us from around the standing up table is Juliet Lindley, journalist and former Vatican correspondent. Very good morning to you, Juliet. How's Dufourstrasse 90 looking today? Guten Tag, Emma. Uh, Dufourstrasse is looking amazing, not too chilly and looking like it's going to be a sunny day. And a quick trip down the Zurich Zay later, I'm assuming. No, no, of course, yeah. <laughs> quick dip. <laughs> Quick tip. Have they opened the You in the yet? Thames. You in the Thames. Yeah, absolutely. And I in Lake Zurich. Excellent. Lovely. Um, good to have you with us, Juliet. You've been doing the heavy lifting for the newspapers. What have you spotted? Well, I'm going to start across the ocean in Trinidad and Tobago. I'm sure you've also heard that there's been a gigantic oil slick off the pristine talcum powder white beaches of Tobago. Now, this is a twin island nation. So Trinidad is a larger island, mainly famous for its natural gas and oil. And Tobago is the famous one for its um, pretty, pretty beaches and its tourism. So Prime Minister Keith Rowley of the ruling PNM party has said... This is a national disaster. It's a national emergency and he will spare no expense to help rehabilitate the beaches on Tobago's southwest coast. So the problem is that the government is struggling to understand the volume of oil that has caused this spillage and how much more will continue to leak from a submerged vessel. Now, by the way, this is a mystery in itself because it's been drifting upside down with no crew on board and no traceable owner, Emma. So efforts are underway to block the leak and uh, they're intensifying efforts to mop up this mess, essentially, and volunteers are even stepping in. Now, just across the Caribbean Sea on the island of Trinidad, it is carnival. And think Notting Hill Carnival, but on steroids, and spectacular celebrations are underway. There are steel pan concerts, street parades, everyone dresses up. It's a national holiday for Carnival Monday and Carnival Tuesday before everything calms down on Ash Wednesday and the, the entire country just comes alive. But also it's a huge attraction for, uh, for tourists, for diaspora Trinidadians. And what happens is that on Ash Wednesday, when everything dies down, people head to Tobago to sort of rest and recover and nurse their hangovers. So that's a big question. What's it going to be like when you head to Tobago? How quickly can they clean this up? And the difficulty is, is and as is being reported, why widely is that this national emergency that's been declared is that they they can't clean it up until they can stop the leak and they're struggling to do that so what effect is that going to have in in tobago's ability to sort of welcome people and 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 be and maintain that beautiful reputation that's exactly it and you're seeing all these images of this thick black sticky tar and it's a bit ironic that it's volunteers having to mop it up this is an industry which brings in billions of dollars surely they should have an emergency 
emergency crew who can do this uh, professionally and not uh, have to sort of have a grassroots effort to clean it up. But yes, Trinidad and Tobago's beaches are so well known. The hope is really that they can sort this out really fast. Um, Let's move on to... Quite an amazing picture story, um, Juliet, <laughs> from uh, the the Argentine president Javier Millet, um, with his wild hair and and and, <laughs> and big thick chops, um, giving Pope Francis an enormous embrace this this Sunday. Now um, it's being yeah. widely covered as um, another miracle at their um, another miracle with with the right wing populist embracing um, the pontiff, who he's actually not been very nice about in the past. It's no secret there was not a lot of love lost between the two of them. They have sharply diverging economic views. I mean, Millet is a 53-year-old free market champion, right-wing anarcho-capitalist, he calls himself, anti-establishment. He's called Francis a son of a gun, an imbecile, and uh, someone who just promotes communism, and he's the devil's man on earth. And then you have Francis, um, 86-year-old champion of the poor and of the vulnerable, who says that free market cause far too much inequality. And um, Millet says, oh, he interferes too much in politics. Pope Francis says uh, something's got to be done urgently about the country. There are two, there's a 200% inflation rate, 40% of the population of this 46 uh, million population of the country are living in poverty. And then you have this picture that happens when the two come together. Millet's on a, on a visit to Italy. He's also visiting um, Giorgio Meloni, the Prime Minister, President Sergio Mattarella. He met the State Secretary at the Vatican, but he meets Francis, and there's these shots of these great embraces, everyone looking very jovial, and um, and Millet even was very reverent towards him, calling him your holiness. And and Francis sort of seemed to, to, to brush off the, the insults that had been hurled at him previously, saying, well, that's what people say when they're on a on a ca- on a p- uh, political campaign but anyway Emma the question now of course is Millet has invited Bergoglio to his homeland back home and ever since he became pontiff in 2013 uh, Jorge Maria Bergoglio has not gone back to his home country and um, the question is whether this will happen some are saying that it'll happen towards the end of the year but uh, the Pope has some serious health challenges and it'll be a bit of a tricky international trip, but it'll be very symbolic and very important if he does make that pontifical voyage. It would be a major coup for Millet. As well, yeah. Um, let's move uh, to Switzerland. Uh, the things that preoccupy the Swiss, obviously <laughs> transport, massive. Uh, staying in line with the law, again, a massive priority. Um, but uh, the Targus Anzeiger has decided to highlight all those dreadful people who don't travel with a train ticket. They call them ticket sinners. And the headline is, what character traits make us ticket sinners? Well, in Switzerland, almost one million people apparently were caught riding for free or Schwarzfahren, riding in the black um, last year. And only 40% were first-time offenders. So almost one in three have been caught six or more times. This is just such a cute article, really. And um, who does it? Well, apparently they've been researching and it's more males and females. Perhaps no surprises there. Mainly higher educated people and people who can actually afford 
the tickets. Now, they're not cheap, as you know, Emma, riding the public transport system comes with a high price, although it does come with high efficiency, as you were saying. People who love the risk factor, maybe they just love the fact that you might manage to hop off before the inspectors hop on. But in the old days, you could have said like, oh, you know, ticket machine wasn't working. I had to get on quickly and I didn't get my ticket. Or, oh, I didn't know my kids were actually of an age where I need to pay for their train tickets now. But nowadays, everything is, you know, you click on an app, there's a digital footprint. And often, you know, the inspectors, they're obviously incognito. So when they're on there, you don't know they're there and then they'll pop up in between stations. So you can't flick your hop on, hop off app to show that you actually did your ticket because it won't show that you're at a particular railway station. Anyway, Emma, just to close on this, um, the champion of all fair dodgers last year was a 15-year-old from Bern. He was caught 66 times within four months without a ticket. And he was fined 600 francs, which honestly is not very much considering each time is a 100 franc fine. What I absolutely love about this article, Juliet, is is the language in it. I mean, you mentioned the fact that the headline is a ticket sinner. And the fact that effectively, um, is, is, is this isn't just somebody who just... Who who doesn't do it because they can't afford it. There's a character trait that this article <laughs> is trying to explore, that the fact that actually it's a, it's a, it's generally a man who quite likes taking a risk. I mean, yeah, how, this is wonder. quite a risk-averse country. <laughs> if the worst that any of us can do is like skip a train. <laughs> Go and have fun some other way, right? Absolutely. Juliet Lindley, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Dufourstrasse 90 in Zurich. The time here in London is 7.29. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A quick look now at some of today's other headlines. Thailand's former Prime Minister Thaksin Shinawat has been granted parole after serving six months in detention. Thaksin, who's arguably Thailand's best-known Prime Minister, returned to the country after 15 years in exile. He had his eight-year jail term commuted to a year by the king and served six months in hospital detention over an undisclosed health condition. He didn't spend a single night in prison. France has sent written proposals to Beirut aimed at ending hostilities between Israel and settling the disputed Lebanon-Israel border. The plan calls for fighters, including Hezbollah, to withdraw 10 kilometres from the frontier. Fighting has been running in parallel to the Gaza war. Meanwhile, a Dutch court has ordered the government to block all exports of F-35 fighter jet parts to Israel that follows concerns they were being used to violate international law during the war in Gaza. Israel denies committing abuses. And the Canadian mining firm London Mining says one of its employees has been killed while operating a piece of equipment underground at its mine in Portugal. The company said operations at the mainly copper and zinc producing mine have been suspended. And those are the headlines on The Globalist. on the dot here in London. Now, having been dragged into the conflict between Israel and Hamas simply by being geographically on the border, Egypt now finds itself in an unenviable position. It's having to play a key role as mediator between the two sides. Not least because Egypt and Israel have history and a peace deal to keep intact. But recent moves by Israel are threatening to destabilise all this. Shahira Amin is a journalist based in Cairo and non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. And she joins me on the line from the Egyptian capital. A very good morning to Shahira. Good morning, Emma. Good to be with you. Now, you've written a piece about this for the Atlantic Council, basically laying out the fact that Egypt finds itself in an an impossible position here, doesn't it? 
Absolutely. Um, Egypt is actually stuck between a rock and a hard place. Uh, there's no winning uh, in this situation. Um, if Egypt were to open its border and allow an influx of Palestinian refugees into its territory, it'll be seen as uh, being complicit in the forced displacement of an entire population. Um, Palestinians will not be allowed to return to their homeland, as we've seen um, in the case of Palestinian refugees in Jordan and in Lebanon. Also, the risk of rockets being fired into Israel um, if Hamas were to infiltrate uh, Egyptian territory, uh, this would threaten the peace treaty, uh, dragging Egypt into a conflict with Israel. Um, and if Egypt, on the other hand, keeps the border closed, uh, Cairo could be held accountable for many more lives lost. Uh, we've seen in recent days the airstrikes on Rafah uh, in the south of the Gaza Strip, and uh, these people have nowhere to go. And these airstrikes on, on Rafah have precipitated this problem, haven't they, to the point that Egypt and, and doesn't quite know where to turn next. I mean, you've laid out the, 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 the dreadful problem that it faces. Close the border and risking people to die. Open the border and being accused of, of, of helping with the forced displacement of, of people. So what is it about the Rafa attacks which has, has brought this so much to the fore? Uh, we heard Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, announced plans for a full-scale ground offensive in Rafa. Um, and uh, Rafah, as you rightly said, is right on the border. It's on Egypt's northern border. And it's the last safe haven for the 1.4 million uh, displaced Palestinians who have sought shelter there. Uh, they live in tent cities in abhorrent conditions uh, with very little food, no water, no fuel. Uh, they're relying on the very little humanitarian assistance that they get, which is hardly enough. Um, and um, so a full-scale offensive in Rafah can only mean more loss of lives, including thousands of civilians, innocent women and children. Um, already the death toll is extremely high, uh, near to 30,000 dead Palestinians. Um, and... Um, yeah, Cairo fears that any attacks on Rafah may prompt a mass influx of Palestinians into the Sinai Peninsula. Um, it's concerned that, you know, those uh, desperate Palestinians may storm the border. And those fears are not unfounded. Um, we heard earlier on in the war, members of Prime Minister Netanyahu's right-wing coalition call for the transfer of Palestinians to Sinai. That's been categorically rejected by Egypt, uh, which in recent days has beefed up security on its side of the border, deploying tens of uh, armoured vehicles and tanks. Uh, earlier, Egypt had erected a concrete wall with barbed wire. Uh, it's also enhanced surveillance at border posts. Um, and while Egypt has taken in refugees from Syria, Yemen and neighbouring Sudan, the case is totally different with the Palestinians for several reasons. 
A, Cairo doesn't want to be involved in the forced displacement, as I said earlier. Uh, there's also the concern of Hamas infiltration, which could transform Sinai into a base for anti-Israeli uh, militant attacks, jeopardizing the peace treaty. But also Egypt is facing a dire economic crisis and a mass inflow of refugees would pile added pressure on the Egyptian economy. Tell us a little bit more about, we've, we've mentioned a couple of times, um, Shahira, the, the, the historical context about this one, because Egypt and Israel um, have until the late 1970s been known as fighting major wars with each other. And it was the Camp David agreements in, in, in September 1978 that brought an, brought an end to all this and basically stabilised a very unstable part of the world. Is there any sense that this might be under threat? I doubt very much that the peace treaty is under threat, although uh, Egyptian officials have indeed threatened to suspend the Camp David Accords. But I think this is a bit of muscle flexing on Egypt's part, uh, not to be one to seen as uh, helpless and weak right now. Um, relations have been... Uh, sturdy with Israel in recent years. Uh, there's been close security cooperation between Egypt and Israel. And I don't think Egypt wants to jeopardize that. Uh, also, um, Cairo is a little bit wary of Hamas because of its affiliation with the Muslim Brotherhood, which has been designated as a terrorist group in Egypt. So um, I think that Discussions are ongoing, um, and uh, uh, I think yeah, both Israel and Egypt will be looking out for their own interests. Um, Israel wants to control the buffer zone, uh, the Philadelphia corridor, and I think there are talks uh, currently underway, uh, perhaps to allow Israel to seize control of the border area, if only temporarily. Shahira Amin, thank you for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. Just nudging 8.38am in Zurich. It's 2.38 in Washington, D.C. Now, let's hear the latest now on efforts to push through a support package, package for Ukraine and Israel through the U.S. Senate. Charles Hecker is a senior partner at Control Risks, a regular voice here on Monaco Radio, and he joins me back in the studio. Welcome back, Chuck. Pleasure to be here. Nice to have you. Um, Right, let's just bring ourselves up to date with this because all the news wires are, are, are updating themselves that the US Senate, it says according to Reuters, is, is heading towards a final passage of its Ukraine aid bill. That suggests progress. It suggests progress, but it doesn't guarantee it. But you're absolutely right. Um, the debate uh, that has raged now for weeks and months about ongoing support for Ukraine and new support for Israel sort of inched its way towards passage in the Senate. Late last night, a group of Republican senators broke away from their colleagues to support the Democrats. And that means that 95 billion pounds, dollars, excuse me, 95 billion dollars worth of U.S. aid to Ukraine and also to Israel with some humanitarian support for Gaza 
um, looks like it might pass the Senate. Those who dissent among Republicans in the Senate, though, are threatening to delay passage of the bill, though it looks like at one point or another this will go through. Indeed. I mean, just looking at what's happened, it says, you know, Reuters is saying Senate passage appears certain. Are we are we sure now that this is going to jump through? Yes, because what's happened is enough Republicans have broken away from their caucus to make the bill filibuster proof. To get anything through the Senate these days, you really need 60 senators, um, a supermajority, to say yes. Otherwise, any one senator can hold up a bill by filibustering, which means getting onto the floor of the Senate, reading from the phone book and delaying everything until people just sort of collapse of exhaustion. Um, That can't happen with this bill. But... Once it gets through the Senate, it then has to get through the House. And that is a much, much trickier deal. That is probably not going to happen. Opposition to aid to Ukraine is much stronger um, in the House of Representatives, the lower house of the United States Congress. um, And that is the place where the Republicans have a very, very slim majority. Um, We know that crossing the aisle to vote with Democrats in the House is severely punished inside the Republican caucus there. So it's less likely that there'll be any crossing the aisle to try to push this bill through there. And let's just remind ourselves the objection to the Ukraine bill, which now has Israel being lumped in together as as receiving a package of military aid as well. So this is a huge deal. Um, But this is not just because of any kind of desire by the Republicans to scale back support for Ukraine. This has all got to do with Mexico. That's right. So in its origins, this bill was part of a very big package that lumped together Israel, Ukraine and immigration. And the Republicans were saying, why should we be supporting a war in Ukraine when we have, in their words, a war on our southern border with Mexico? Um, And what they tried to do was, you know, understanding that most people do want to send money to Ukraine and do certainly want to support the Israeli government, which is one of the United States' strongest and oldest allies. Um, They said, well, then let's freight this with an immigration bill. Um, The Republicans essentially killed their own immigration bill in the House of Representatives, where it is now sitting dead. Uh, Let's deal with some other business with the United States at the moment. Um, The place in Congress vacated by George Santos, his seat, uh, up for uh, for grabs in New York. Uh, Just explain to us where we're up to with that. I mean, the background of Mr. Santos is always a joy to hear about. Um, But but who's vying to take his seat? That's right. It is Election Day today in the 3rd Congressional District of New York, um, a seat once held by George Santos. And let's just refresh our memories a tiny bit. Um, He lied about his academic degrees. He lied about his career on Wall Street. And if that weren't enough, he then stole money from the people who made donations to his congressional campaign fund. Um, He was ejected from the House of Representatives. He is currently under investigation, and we are awaiting um, indictments and a trial, most likely, um, for those fraudulent activities. But today is Election Day in the 3rd District in New York, and we have Maisie Phillip, um, Pillip, forgive me, who is a registered Democrat running as a Republican to replace the Republican Santos. Okay. 
And the former holder of this seat, a gentleman called Tom Suozzi, um, who served three terms in this seat in New York, is running for re-election. He is running as a Democrat. Now, if you haven't been too confused by that already, um, there's also a massive snowstorm heading towards New York um, that may impact balloting. And the New York Times tells us that the race is a statistic dead heat. Excellent. We should look forward to following this. This is crucial for the Democrats, isn't it? That's right, Uh, because George Santos was one of those slim majority voters in the House of Representatives. The House of Representatives, if this seat flips, it gets even harder for the Republicans to hold legislation hostage um, in the lower house. Um, The district has been drifting towards the Republican side of the aisle in previous elections. And so there might be a slim chance that the Republicans will hold this. Um, And they're clearly trying to woo Democratic voters by running a Democrat, essentially, in the Republican uh, candidacy. And while we have you here, let's talk about Donald Trump for a little while as well. I mean, uh, yesterday he was asking the Supreme Court to um, delay a judicial decision um, about whether he is or isn't immune from prosecution. Tell us a little bit more about that one. We're getting sort of a a roundup of of complicated and difficult political figures today. Well, it's always a busy day in American politics, but lately it just gets busier and busier. And and today things really do seem to be coming to a bit of a boil. So President Trump considers the Supreme Court his comfort zone because it has a six to three conservative to liberal majority. And he, of course, appointed three justices to the Supreme Court. What he has asked them to do is to put on hold a determination by a lower court that says he can go to trial for criminal acts in connection with the January 6th raid on the Capitol and the attempt to overturn the 2020 elections. Um, And so this is important because the Democrats feel that the prosecution of this case is one of the things that they can genuinely hang on candidate Trump and attempt to hamstring his electoral potential. Um, If he can convince the Supreme Court um, to put this judgment on hold, he feels that he'll be able to sneak into the White House um, and then put this all away once he's elected president. Charles Hecker, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Let's head now to the UAE to get a roundup of all the news from that part of the world. Mustafa Al-Rawi is Acting Managing Director for CNN Business Arabic in Dubai. A very good morning to you, Mustafa. Morning, Emma. How's the weather over there? Yes, we're not talking about that, thank you. I'm assuming sunshine where you are. Actually, we've had severe rains and downpours, a big storm in the region, so um, not too different from the UK. Okay, I won't say I'm happy to hear that. Um, Let's talk about uh, Narendra Modi um, from India heading, heading to the UAE. So uh, the Indian prime minister is making his third visit in eight months, his seventh since 2015 to the UAE. Of course, there's a large non-resident Indian population, not just in the UAE, but the Gulf, been here for many decades. Uh, But Narendra Modi has a very strong following uh, amongst them. And he will be uh, not only 
doing what leaders do when they visit other countries in terms of negotiating business deals and, and improving relations. But he's actually going to be hosting a gig at a big uh, stadium in Abu Dhabi where it's expected that 60,000 people will come to hear him speak as well as see you know various shows. And this is the same venue that's hosted uh, George Michael and, and Real Madrid. But I think Narendra Modi, it's safe to say, has a bigger fan base than both of those combined. He does actually uh, manage to attract these enormous events wherever he goes. And, and it is quite a spectacle. Um, what is he hoping to achieve by this? And, and tell us a little bit more about the importance of the relationship, given the regularity of his visits. So it's interesting because his visit, as I said, not only takes in the business and the political, um, but also addresses, you know, his his voter base um, or his f- supporters rather uh, here, who are really big supporters of Narendra Modi, um, the, the people living in the UAE and, and the wider region, but also religiously and culturally, the first uh, Hindu mosque he he will inaugurate tomorrow in Abu Dhabi as well. And and if you think about the wider sort of controversies that are going on in India um, with regards to, um, you know, uh, Islam and Hinduism and, and almost the culture clash uh, over there uh, and with the controversy about uh, Hindu temples being um, set up on Muslim sites, there is a heavy irony about Narendra Modi coming here to celebrate um, and it is a celebration of, of this Hindu mosque being opened in a predominantly Muslim country. This is something, though, that the UAE needs, given the fact of the amount of investment that it has in India. It's one of the top four investors in India. And obviously, India needs the UAE on side. It's it's really fascinating to see how this relationship has bloomed. A couple of years ago, they signed what they call a comprehensive economic partnership agreement, which is something slightly different from a free trade agreement, but really the idea behind that is to encourage, obviously, investment and trade, and it really has risen sharply in that time. And the UAE and in, in, in India have been very, very close. But if we look at the U- India's position globally now, particularly with China uh, facing an uncertain economic outlook, um, India has become, for example, the US's largest trading partner. Um, and the India is negotiating an FTA with the UK at the moment. And India has become more and more important um, as an economic player and for the UAE, which is also has similar ambitions to become more influential and more significant than being as close as possible with a growing economic power like India can only be beneficial to both sides. Uh, let's move on to uh the World Government Summit being held in Dubai, obviously a, a huge event as well, with Dubai becoming increasingly the location for big international gatherings. Um, but one of the lines coming out of it was a warning from the WHO Director General about um, the, the aftermath of the pandemic. Well, it's interesting because I think we, you know, as, as countries, as societies, even as individuals, we're trying to put it behind us, the experience of, of the COVID-19 pandemic. But Dr. Tedros uh, Ghebreyesus, if I could pronounce it properly, um, he, he warned that six years on, um, you know, from, from, you know, the period before the pandemic, when we weren't ready, we're still not ready should it hit again. And for the last two years, there have been negotiations to create a sort of international um, protection mechanism for countries. Uh, 194 uh, members of the WHO are trying to come to this agreement. They need to, to decide on the framework, on the standards by the end of May when there, there's a next big WHO gathering. However, Dr. Tedros said there's been a lot of conspiracy theories, a lot of pushback saying that the WHO is somehow trying to undermine the sovereignty of nations 
by trying to pull together this framework. And he's warning that if we don't do this, we will once again experience something as difficult as as, as what we did a few years ago. Uh, finally, let's talk about drones. Um, I mean, everybody is talking about drones in terms of the uh, of how useful they can be in terms of our day-to-day lives um, and deliveries being uh, very much at the forefront of lots of people's um, discussions. Is this something that Dubai is racing ahead with? Because reports suggest that Dubai is leading the way here. So Dubai wants to lead the way in in the future of mobility, the future of transport, the future of uh, supply chains, if you like, and 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 the technology behind that. Whether it's you know unmanned drones or flying taxis is something that Dubai is setting up regulations for, doing deals with companies for, and and experts um, here have said this week that if you are able to switch deliveries um, over to drones, they can be cheaper as well as being 20 times more efficient than deliveries over land. And of course, that's important for climate. It's important for what we're trying to do in terms of a more sustainable future. However, I think that we need a healthy dose of skepticism when it comes to to these initiatives, not because there isn't sort of a benefit to it, but just how quickly it can actually happen in a safe and regulated way. And if we look across the world at, for example, what Tesla and other companies are trying to do with self-driving cars, we do know there was a certain amount of um, hype that is perhaps not quite as justified. Um, So yes, Dubai is trying to lead the way, but maybe 2026 probably is is maybe too soon, a target to expect all of this to be in place. Mustafa Awari, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. Finally, on today's programme, the fashion giant Saint Laurent is joining the throngs of luxury brands branching out from their core business of fashion. It's opening a bookshop in Paris. Saint Laurent Babylon will stock rare books, magazines and out-of-print music records, handpicked by the label's creative director, Anthony Vaccarello. Well, to tell us more, I'm delighted to say Natalie Theodosi, Monocle's fashion editor, joins me on the line. A very good morning to you, Natalie. Good morning, Emma. How are you? Very well, thank you. I'm very excited to hear about this new Saint Laurent bookshop. Tell us where it is and what's going to be in it. I've given a little bit of a, a teaser, but I'm sure you can flesh it out much more elegantly. You did. And it's, it is, um, I agree, such an interesting story. It just opened uh, last week and it's in the left bank of uh, Paris on uh, Rue de Grenelle. And it's really, I think, a passion project and it reflects Anthony Vaccarello's interest with in music in in books and well, what's interesting uh, is that the brand also wants to use it as an event space so they want to host uh, dj sessions author readings book signings and launches and it's a reflection i think of their ambitions to really branch out into other creative sectors they've also um last year um launched a film production company uh, as, uh under their umbrella so a lot going on at san law there's lots and lots going on i mean in this shop there is there, there's a sort of sense that um obviously it's an incredibly beautiful place but it's but as you said it's a cultural hub um which is is going to be intent to bring in what intellectuals creatives and to try and sort of bring a real sense of life to rue de grenelle Exactly. And I think it's, it's such an important location for them as well, because uh, Saint Laurent has such a history with the left bank. It's where uh, the founder, Yves Saint Laurent, opened his first ready-to-wear boutique uh, at a time when 
all the couture salons were on the right bank, but he chose to to go to the other side of the river, which was more bohemian. It was filled with students, and uh, he pioneered um, uh, this brand that offered clothes off the rack, uh, uh, Pret-à-Porter, as they called it, which, which was a very new thing at the time in the 1960s. He also lived there in a beautiful apartment right near the, the where the store is located now and uh, uh, brought people together. He had a beautiful art collection. So it's it's very true to the spirit of the brand. And it's just doing it in, in a modern way. And, and like you said, uh, bringing together intellectuals, creatives, and also encouraging customers to think of the brand and engage with the brand in a, in a very different, maybe less commercial way. Tell us a little bit more about what Anthony Vaccarello is doing here at Saint-Doran. Um, the fact that he's, you know, he's met this production company has, has started up and there's many discussions about how Vaccarello is making Saint-Doran his own by paying homage or paying tribute to the past of Saint-Doran the house, but also making sure that he makes it his own. I think he's had such a great run um, transforming the house into one of the fastest growing, most successful brands under the caring umbrella uh, in the in the fashion world. He, he's a very sharp focus on his designs and on the images of the campaigns and, and really created a world around uh, his collections that, like like you said, it's, it's a very fine balance of something that feels new and fresh, but you'll never see him veer too far of course it's always the smoking tuxedo the 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 safari jacket things that are really true to the brand and and it has really resonated with with the global customers that the, the brand has grown so much and i think now he's just experimenting with uh, what else the brand could be now that it is in such a good state in in, in the fashion uh, department. And uh, books is one of them. And uh, this production company that launched last year is is another. Uh, They started with uh, a film by Pedro Almodovar that was um, launched in the Cannes Film Festival. And they just want to work with as many producers and actors as possible. It's not a commercial uh, exercise as much they're not doing they're not producing fashion films only but he said that he wants to just give space to the to the people and uh, that have been inspiring him all throughout his career tell us a little bit and we've got a bare minute to go through this but tell me how much of an internal haute couture rivalry is going on between here because the minute that you hear about the vaccarello bookshop you start thinking about karl lagerfeld when he opened his um, his bookshop while he was allowed and his library is occasionally being opened up for discussion for intellectuals and, and political thinkers and also for creatives as well and one wonders whether there's a sort of a, a gentle sniping going on here. <laughs> I think you're right it's such I, I started thinking about it as well and realized that it's not something brand new. Like you said, Karl Lagerfeld's library is absolutely incredible. Uh, Kim Jones as well, the creative director of Dior Menswear, has an incredible library and, and dedicated a whole show to Jack Kerouac a few seasons ago and displayed some of his own uh, rare editions of, of his books uh, before the show. Um, Alaya as well, another French brand, um, had done a collaboration with um, Rare Books, but a Rare Books. It's a bookshop in Paris and they curated uh, pop-ups with with different books um, in their London and Paris shops. So I think uh, brands are just thinking of different ways to to get creative, to engage customers. And designers are just really interesting people that look at books and, and film and art 
as a way of inspiring their collections. And I think that's when designers are really successful, when they do look beyond their uh, sector and, and their beat and, and engage the, the creative world as a whole. Natalie Theodosi, thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. That's all the time we have for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers Emma Searle, Chris Chermack and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researcher was Naomi Ekwe and our studio manager was Christy O'Grady. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing's live at midday. The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. For now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs> 